You're listening to Mike and Kristen. The podcast. I'm Mike, a musician, writer, and producer. And I'm Kristen, a painter, writer, and designer. Our show is all about following dreams, taking chances, and what life as an artist is really about. Together, we bring you weekly guest interviews and thought-provoking conversations. Let's go! Hello, folks, friends and families, and even foes out there who are listening to Mike and Kristen, because we got a lot of enemies, and they all tune in just to hear what we say, to kind of rip into us if we say something bad, but we never do, because we're professionals here, Mike and Kristen. <laughs> wow. Is a foe an enemy? Yeah. You never heard of a foe? I don't know. I don't think so. Friends and foes? Friends and foes. Maybe I've heard it and just like never bothered. To... Every medieval piece off <laughs> film or <laughs> writing they always refer to their enemies as foe i like that time period as well fits well, you, my fits my sword that i have well you should look into some more words from that time period and <laughs> see if you're missing out on any other good ones we can speak in shakespearean oh nah you don't like shakespeare do you well i like the messages and like the storylines and well He's obviously genius, but just that type of uh, old English I don't like. Mm-hmm. Like if it was updated. <laughs> Which it is. It, well, I guess people are always taking the storylines from what he's created and, and putting it into new pieces. And I like those pieces. Well, speaking of storylines and telling stories, today's guest, Dylan Garland. An old friend, Dylan the Garland. The expert, Yes. It was really great to see him. It's uh, It's been a few years since he's been around. Yeah, he's uh, started, we tell all these stories in there, but started off making music videos with us. Not started off, but he that's kind of where he, he kind of made his first professional things was early on when he was 19. He started doing some music videos with uh, Dalhousie and then eventually with us in the Town Heroes you interviewed him for your thesis research. He's a great guy and a talented guy. and He's been in our life for a long time, especially yeah. before he came over. You and I were kind of reflecting on these different moments that Dylan had been around and worked on special projects. And I don't think we talked about it on the podcast, but even for our wedding party that we had here in yeah. Canada... I had reached out to him and asked to piece together a little compilation of a trip down memory lane. Yeah. That we pulled the TV out. And a surprise to me. A surprise to you and showed this film reel to our guests and to you. And that was a really special project, too, that he did for us. Like I said, our wedding party here in Canada. Because we got eloped in Jamaica, but it just sounded funny. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, well, yeah. I feel the need to follow up with that because some people know we did elope. Here Not in, in Canada. Here in Canada, folks. <laughs> the winter is ending. The days are getting longer. The sun is a little bit brighter every day. And the smiles and the faces of the people in the streets that you encounter are just growing just exponentially as time passes and the summer approaches. And we are excited about it. We are. <laughs> and we're waiting to get the word back about some really good news. Yeah, I've been reluctant to talk too much more about the news because it's just, it's just percolating. Yeah. Yeah. 
And we didn't talk about our party. That's right. Like probably the most fun we've had in <laughs> years. Forever. Yeah. It was a very, very fun, special, engaging, magical weekend. Our our one year podcast anniversary party. Yeah. And yeah, we had a large portion of our guests were able to make it from the last year. So people you would have listened to out there. We started the party at 2 p.m. on April 1st yeah. and it ended at 2 a.m. on April 2nd. Yes. Yes. We had a 12 hour party. And yeah, it was a long day. We put a lot of work into making sure it was, we knew it was going to be successful and fun and just everyone have a good time. You and I are not partiers. We're, we're actually known to be pretty low key. Like we don't drink much or like if I stay up past 10 o'clock, I usually get a headache and my body just is not equipped for it. So, but when we do host a big party, we go all out yeah. and make up for it. And this was one of those weekends that you could tell everyone, I think mostly just enjoyed the social aspect and the company of others. And there was this really unique thing about it where they all had in common having been guests or partners yeah. of the guests and meeting new people, having that. In yeah, it was just. Well, I posted a little video of me just kind of walking through the party. And the the interesting thing about it was that every single person was engaged in a conversation. Mm -hmm. It was just this, That's it was really all about conversation. Yeah, The people had fun and people got <laughs> pretty wobbly. <laughs> but um, I think, yeah, just seeing all these conversations happening and just, people meeting for the first time and hugging and becoming fast friends. And I guess it just felt nice to be able to bring this unique group of people together. It did feel nice. Yes, there was an energy in the room. Absolutely. But let's get to another the, nice guy. Another <laughs> nice guy. Another great conversation. Yeah, I really love this chat with Dylan. He It was great to catch up and he's just got a great perspective on things and yeah missed him let's go cozy it is <laughs> got some blankets you got a tea or coffee? What do you got? I got a medium double-double. Medium double-double. That's Going very Nova Scotian of right. you. Vintage. You got a stuffed monkey there to your right named Banana. <laughs> if you need e a therapy animal. Even better. <laughs> and as you can see on the wall, uh, the, this was recently named in an episode with uh, Nancy Regan. She gave the line the name Lawrence. Nancy Regan named the lion yes. from the... <laughs> oh, okay, cool. And you recognize that from a music video we did probably like seven years ago or so now. 2014, 15, something around that? Yeah, that's even more than yeah. seven. So... And Kristen, you were in it. I was in that video. We'll talk about that, but I want to know about Lawrence's discovery. Did you guys go to Value Village together to shop <laughs> yes. for those props? Yes. We, we had... What was our budget? It was... Seven dollars. <laughs> no, well, we got quite a bit, Close. actually. <laughs> I think it was definitely at least a hundred. 
Yeah, I think um, probably the most anybody spent at that value oh, building. definitely, yeah. <laughs> like a professional uh, barber chair, hair dryer. It was, I think it was you, me, Bruce, and I th- think Chelsea, our cinematographer for yeah. it. And we just went in and like anybody who's been to Value Village, you know, there's clothing on one side, there's DVDs on the other, and then way in the back, there's just like miscellaneous <sighs> anything. That's and where we went. We went and I think we cleared out their stock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lion's heads, the the dryer head top, uh, the what was it? The um the what do you call it? Like a beer? Beer helmet. Beer I helmet. Guess. Like that, you can chug two beer at once. Like <laughs> if if you can't you know, just put a shotgun of beer and that's not fast enough. You can get a beer helmet where you can chug two at the same time. And I think it's available for only like 18 payments of $9.99. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Depending As on that the video. video yeah. states. Yeah. <laughs> so who, did you come up with the concept for that, Dylan? And then you guys just went and picked out props? I don't remember. I, I think in general you had the idea for oh uh, kind of um an aging infomercial star amazing i must have been on something uh <laughs> that day that's amazing I, I remember <laughs> i remember like the the conversations were like um you know, we had this we went to a music it was cambridge right yeah yeah we went to a music video for cambridge and we started coming up with ideas and i i think now i remember now that you say that i remember like i was talking about an infomercial and then it just kind of got into like the most town hero um easter egg thing we could ever do because like all the tapes that were labeled were specifics we had a photo of somebody on the top of the tv that was a reference to another song yeah it was like yeah just building upon which is low i I love videos and just well pieces of art that have things (laughs) hidden in them and a new music video that uh well not that we worked on but uh we put out a song called fuse on our last album yep and there's an Easter egg in there that no one has picked up on yet. Is Ooh. it the flashing Bruce still has video? <laughs> <laughs> is there like a video playing in the background or something like a film? Or? We can't say what it okay. is. Okay. All right. Oh, I don't want to give it away. Uh, we'll let everybody has to go look for it yeah. now. And the Easter eggs in Cambridge too. Yeah. Well, there's a, yeah, there's a lot in Cambridge and this one just has one. It's very quick and you have to catch it. You have to pay attention to catch it. So if I watched it, do you think I'd I'd pick up on it? That now that you're looking for it, I watch it like a bunch of times without knowing or yeah, something. Yeah. And then the guy Patrick who edited, he said, "Hey, did you find the Easter egg?" And like then I watched it with a critical eye. <laughs> nice. And yeah, yeah, I found it then. So yeah, you you would you would pick up cool. on it now. I think we did have. I I don't think anybody's figured this out yet. Uh, and if they have, they never told me because we fit a Star Wars Easter egg into the Berlin Wall video. Where <laughs> yeah. the opening, your brother screams <laughs> James, in German, yeah. and we haven't really said anything that what it translates to. But I got here's a reveal for the podcast: <laughs> he screams at the top of his lungs, "May the force be with you!" <laughs> in German, yeah, because yeah. Julia, his well, his wife, right. was there, and we we were just thinking of something. What's random you could say right now? Because <laughs> he was supposed to be mad at me, I think. Yeah. And, uh, That's yeah. incredible. I yeah. had no idea. I knew the German, but I didn't know what he was saying. Of course, I love that. <laughs> that's uh, that's that's a beautiful thing about film, yeah. In in particular, where you can tie these little things in that yep. when you really dive into what's happening, there's these just hidden things and messages and there's layers. Yeah, which is really good. I I have I haven't told anybody this except uh, people that were involved with the show, but I did a um. I did a ghost hunting show uh, a couple years ago, and I directed one of the seasons for it. 
And in the edit, because of where we were filming, there was always some sort of uh, either one of the lodges or something of the Freemasons, wherever we went. So if you watch that season, season six of the show, Haunted on Eastlink, every yeah. single episode has a hidden reference to the Freemasons. Okay. So any conspiracy people out there who want to watch it, yeah, look for look for the sign. When There's no reason for it, but I just thought it'd be cool. <laughs> when you're factoring in the Easter egg or yeah. some of these special layers and details, is that for the film buff that may be watching it or for you and your own pleasure and fun? <laughs> I, I think it's about, I don't think I've ever done one specifically for like uh, the film buff. I think it's more for like, ooh, I have a best friend that'll get this. Or it's almost like inside jokes. But every once in a while, there'll be a, a thing where, because I, what I like to do in my uh, like scripted films and stuff like that is I'll leave tiny little Easter eggs referencing something else that we've done. Um, so there's kind of like a, it's not like a shared universe like Marvel where it's like you watch one and then you get to the other. They're all separate. But there's just tiny little hints of like kind of that world being connected in a way. And uh, so I've done that quite a bit, but mostly it's more or less for like, hey, watch this. You're going to laugh when you hear this thing or you see this thing. So it's That's it's awesome. more like I'm going to get my friends to laugh. Well, I, I do that with music and, and recordings. And I think it's all about creating a narrative yeah. where someone who wants to look at your body of work or someone who's just following along with everything you're doing can pick up on these things and that just add just a little bit to it for them. Yeah. Absolutely. Like in a one song, I might reference something very small from a song two albums ago or yeah, something. Right. And in, uh, we, we did an album, please everyone. And hidden under the CD is like a letter like when you, when you take the physical CD out, there's yep. a, a letter that contains all uh, le references from the songs on the album. And the thing is, it's a lot of work when you do stuff like that. <laughs> like, But I know for the people who are looking for that, who are willing to dig in, it means a lot to them. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, kind of in that same vein, not so much in terms of like Easter eggs like that, but I, I like... Um whenever I write something or I create something, I tend to do it in a way where it's like, when you watch it the first time, you're going to get the surprise. You're going to get sort of like the unknown. But if you watch it again, you're going to see a lot of what you missed because now you have the information that you didn't before. And it's almost like a new experience in that yeah. way. So I, I always love stuff like that, like with your guys' music and other bands and stuff. Like um, uh, a big band that I'm into right now is called Ghost. They're like a metal band and they're, they're very theatrical, which is I think why I like them. But throughout their albums, and especially their new one, they'll reference, like, maybe in music cues, like a little snippet of one of their big songs on their last album to kind of, like, tie it all together. And I yeah. always find it so cool when people do that, because, like, thought goes into that, because you can either do it or you can't, or why am I doing it? Does it fit and everything? I always find that really fascinating, like, just how they come up with it. And I think it shows that you're creating, you're creating not just to put something out. Like, yep. you're, you're mm -hmm. putting your time and energy into it and you want people to connect with it yeah. it's not like okay i'm just putting something out because people are going to like it like you're doing it for a multitude of reasons and that could be different for each person who does it but yep. i think it's just it's very intelligent to me like i would describe that as the intellect of an artist because they're yeah, like you're saying, I'm not just creating something. I'm considering all of these details that you know not everyone is going to pick yeah. up on. And that isn't preventing you from putting the effort in. 
it yeah. actually is encouraging you to put the effort in. I find too, it's obviously, I think it'd probably be different for music, but for film. Um, so la last year we put out a show called The Last Divide, which was based on a movie I did a couple of years ago. Yeah. And it was, an, it, was um, it was a continuation of it, but it was in a way kind of like a soft reboot. Um, it was still a sequel, but we did it in a way where it's like, if you watch the show, you don't necessarily have to see the movie. We encourage people like, hey, go check out how this all started and everything. But one example in that that kind of ties into what you're talking about is the main character, Chloe, the color of her shirt throughout the whole thing is the color of one of the character's shirts uh, in the original that she had only really known for a day, but they formed this really sisterly connection. So what I find interesting about that too is that when you dive into that, like, why would Chloe be wearing that color? It's because she admires this person that she knew for a day and she's kind of like inspired by her and stuff. So you almost get deeper into the character once you add those small details because then you understand much better of like why, how, when, and all that stuff. And it's like super investigative in a way yeah. like to characters that don't exist in real life. I was just going to ask if it's harder to do with something that's fictional because if you have yeah. a nonfiction, you're basing uh, a film off a particular character you already know you know what they're going to wear what their watch mm -hmm. is going to look like what their car yeah. is going to be that they drive like there's a whole other level i imagine of imagination putting into yeah yeah there's a there's a lot um i don't know if it's harder i think it's almost harder with nonfiction because you're basing it off of um you know the real world so it's like it's kind of hard to fit in specific references or little easter eggs mm -hmm. or details like that but what I find with film and, and television in a scripted level, you know, you have so many things you have to figure out for the story anyways. What does the location look like? What does the wardrobe look like? What does the makeup look like? The hair? Um, what do they have for like a backpack? What do they have for all these things? And when you get into that, it, I, I almost find it's like a, a kid in a candy shop in a way where it's you have so many things you have to figure out and you have so many options. It's kind of fun figuring out well, what's the right option for this. So I don't know if I would call it harder, but it, it's definitely more involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, big time. Are you as the director, I'm going to ask some very simple questions. Oh, there's what, no simple questions. What question. I imagine mm. is a simple question for someone to season as you, but okay, so you're hiring uh, a costume designer and a yep. makeup artist, and you have people that are excellent at their work, they're, yep. they know what they're doing, but are you making all of those decisions and then directing them as well? I, what I usually do is I put a lot of trust in the people that are bring on just cause I, I know that like they're, they've studied, you know, makeup and hair and, and I <laughs> shockingly have no idea about makeup <laughs> and hair. Um, I had to mad dash yesterday to get my hair cut cause yesterday I legitimately had a mullet and I'm like, oh, I can't do this podcast if I have a mullet. <laughs> um, it's only audio. Dude. I know. I'm so happy. <laughs> uh, so what I find works best for what I do, and again, it obviously can change for different filmmakers, is I'll suggest where I want to go with it, and then I'll kind of let them take the baton and run the rest of the way. Right. And then if I find out, like, uh, you know, maybe that doesn't quite work, and I'm trying to do this, I'll talk to them. Like, I'll use a makeup artist, for example. Um, our makeup artist for The Last Divide last year, uh, in 2021 when we shot it, was uh, Danielle Mercer, who I've worked with on so much stuff. And what was great is at the beginning, we went through the entire script. She asked questions, she got clarity, and we kind of understood where we were going. And then throughout the shoot itself, because in the end of the show, I wanted these characters who had been, uh, just for anybody who doesn't know, The Last Divide is a post-apocalyptic uh, six-episode series that is uh, on Eastlink Community TV right now. Um, and it's about a young girl who is just trying to find her place in the world. And there's a lot of, like, you know, dangerous people and family dynamics. And the, the core of it is about... Um, 
you know, family isn't necessarily blood. It can be chosen. It can be kind of expanded in a way. Um, as well as there's a lot of kind of identity issues within it. Like, who am I? What am I? Do I do something for the greater good or do I just do it for myself type of thing? Um, what was your question before off that? You were talking about, about making the decisions makeup. on, yeah. So, and I use makeup as an example. It could be casting or absolutely. sets or whatever. It's a, it's a perfect example. Um, so when we went through it and when we got to the end of the show, I wanted the character's hair to be a little different to show like, you know, I don't, th- we may never return to this world again, but I want to give a hint that like they're better off than they were in the beginning. And now their next chapter is going to be in kind of a visual difference. So what we did is uh, we didn't change the costumes or anything, but we changed the hair. And our uh, hair and makeup person, Danielle, was super good with that because I sent her kind of reference photos from like Pinterest or whatever of like, I'm looking for this kind of vibe. And because she understands, you know, actors and and face shapes and hair and everything, she's able to kind of translate that perfectly. So I think the key is getting somebody you trust and then giving them that room to do what they do best and not kind of taking over too much. Um, there, There are examples where it's like, I need her hair to be up because she has a scar on her head or something like that to the yeah. story. But the majority of it is, you know, it's, it's I kind of see it as a 50-50 partnership uh, between the creative and kind of what my vision is for the, for the story. Okay. Yeah. When you're creating, let's just say a film, yeah. what, what is the end goal of that? Are you trying Ooh. to entertain people? Are you trying to make them mm. absorb some type of message like what f- for you when you're creating what well what's the point <laughs> <laughs> mike that is a fantastic question that i ask myself every morning when i wake yeah. up um what is the point what a great question i it's changed for me over the years and it's mostly been because of influence i think around me at the time because you know when i moved up here in 2010 and took film school and you know a lot of um a lot of film teachers and a lot of people in the industry that they kind of dictate where you should go and then you start making films where it's like okay i need to make a film here's a really good example that uh i've kind of been rebellious against and it's kind of bit me in the butt a few times but uh a lot of the advice you get is like for film festivals don't make a short film over 10 minutes um so then i started kind of coming up with concepts that were like, okay, I'll just do this because it's 10 minutes and it should get me kind of like my foot in the door and then I can go make my other thing. And it wasn't really healthy for what I was doing because I didn't feel kind of fulfilled creatively because I was doing it to fit a already tailored suit, I guess is the way to kind of put Mm -hmm. it. Nowadays, um, now that I've kind of, yeah, I've been doing this for 13 years, I'm very much more comfortable with myself. I feel confident in what I kind of want to accomplish as a filmmaker my biggest thing is that I want to create something that is going to take you out of the world for a little bit of time. Yeah, It could be entertaining. It could be, say, like, you know, an action film where you're just on the edge of your seat the whole time kind of seeing what's going on. It could be a horror, so you're biting your nails, like, trying to hide from everything. Um, or it could be something very thought-provoking where it's like, I have a point to make within this story. Uh, I'll use Afraid to Speak, a film we made in 2014 as an example. That film was all about depression and how it affects our main character but we present it in a way that's um a little bit sci-fi i guess where we manifest physically depression as a person in his life so it kind of varies depending on kind of what genre and what story i'm trying to tell but in the very basic terms um i want to remove anybody who's watching my work out of reality for a little bit because you know the world's hard 
There's a lot of stuff going on right now, especially now, you know, we're out of a pandemic. We have so much going on that if I can give that escape for, you know, uh, anybody watching, that's kind of the goal. And on the other side of that for me is I'm almost serving eight-year-old me in a way where I first got interested in filmmaking very young. And I remember, you know, sitting cross-legged with a VHS of Star Wars or Jurassic Park, just kind of being enamored for that. So the point for me is that I want to kind of invoke that feeling that I had when I was eight in a new eight-year-old, yeah. if that makes sense, and kind of inspire them hopefully to kind of want to, you know, look into that world or, or whatever. So that's, I think for me, that's kind of it uh, now. It's interesting to hear this response because I, I, I love that concept, but it also feels like for that 10 minutes of a short film or hour and a half or a full feature yeah. that you're actually more present in the real world than yep. ever before because you're engulfed in this environment that you're participating in. Yeah. So while it might not be your everyday reality, there it almost forces you to be only Present. there. Yep. So that's a really cool, powerful aspect of film as well. It's true. And I, I think for me too, and I know a lot of filmmakers are like this as well, you know, we're taking, and I, I think a lot of people in the arts and not just film would kind of relate to what I'm about to say, I think a lot of people aren't comfortable saying things that they want to say from their own mouth, but through yeah. art, they're able to say that in a very large scale in a very interesting way that you wouldn't really think about. And it kind of gives you that confidence to be like, you know what, maybe I wouldn't let this personal thing about my life slip in if I'm having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody, but if I'm doing it through this character, yeah. I can do that in a way that I wouldn't ever be comfortable doing it in my real life. So you're right. It's mm. like... Is that yeah. true for you? Hugely, yeah. yeah. Uh, I've used basically every project that I've been a part of to kind of say, you know, something that makes sense to say something that maybe I couldn't say out loud in the real world or something that I felt was maybe not being taken seriously in the real world. Or, you know, it's, it's kind of funny, but you look into kind of the films I do, a lot of them are advocacy based where I'm trying to kind of make something easier to understand and um, kind of spreading that a little bit farther into the world. One great example, actually, we had Afraid to Speak air in the Parsboro Film Festival. Uh, I think it was 2015 or 2016, somewhere in that area. And uh, we played the film and there was a bit of a Q&A afterwards and somebody in the back who, you know, was in his 60s said that I had never understood what depression was because I, I hadn't gone through it myself and I'm only hearing it secondhand. But seeing it through the film, I get it now and I have a much better understanding of it. So that I think is like crucial, especially for what I do is that type of thing. Yeah. Has putting it into an art form helped you then be able to speak about it maybe in this kind of environment or more publicly? Hugely. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think there's a kind of an experimentation side of it too, where, you know, if I have an idea or if I have a, a thing that I want to kind of explore Film allows me to push it to its absolute limits and trying to understand like, well, what would happen if this went absolutely as far as it could? What would the reaction be for this character? Um, and I realized that a lot of, a huge kind of theme for what I'm doing uh, in this, ah, this, I guess this kind of counts. It doesn't quite count for Cambridge by the Town Heroes, which is an hmm. aging infomercial thing, but it kind of <laughs> does now that I think about it. Um, fear is a big thing for me. And using fear as a motivator for coming up with the stories that I want to tell 
because I think all of us have fear. We all fear different things. We all feel like, you know, that pit in our stomach, like something's going to go wrong. And I think confronting that fear um, and putting it on screen and everything, it, for the Last Divide movie, which I made in 2017, the core concept of that and the thing that kind of sparked it was, what if the world ended tomorrow and I didn't know where my sister was? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of came through the story. So it's it allows me to almost like, in a weird science fiction <laughs> analogy, I'm like rendering a, a example. I'm like in a Star Trek holodeck and I'm just like, what would happen if this happened? And I'm seeing it in real time. So then I can go back when I'm done and be like, okay, now I understand that. Now I understand this. Now I understand that. What's my next film? Ooh, I don't understand that very well. Let's dive into that. So yeah, absolutely. Very long-winded way to say yes. <laughs> so are you trying to capture a feeling more than anything? I think so, yeah. It, yeah. Capture or invoke. Um, yeah. I think for me, it's, I want people to... You know, obviously I want people to always feel like something is going on that's important within my work, but I also want them to take that home with them, you know, not in a way that's going to like overtake their entire life, because I think, especially now we're in the age where we have the most content coming our way in human history. So I don't want to take up a huge amount of people's time. But if I do put a thing out there and I kind of dedicate myself to making a script or a movie, I hope that people can take that with them and take those kind of feelings with them and and hopefully understand something about themselves better whether it's related to the film or not i'm hoping it kind of you know sparks that well, film is the only media or medium where i feel you can really dive into a feeling in that way yep where we're sitting around like what do you want to watch today uh, i'm in the mood for and yep. you say like an adventure movie because you want to be excited. Yeah. Or I'm in the mood for watching a underdog sports film because you just want to be inspired. Yeah. Like you can kind of, and some people like scary movies because they like being scared and they're absolutely crazy. Who wants to be scared? I, I never understood it. <laughs> I, I, suspense I and thriller. <laughs> this guy oh, just did a whole series I, on being scared. No, but suspense and like thrillers are different i find but like horror movies just i'm like i don't get it because i spend my whole life trying to not be scared i guess <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile I'm, I'm like yeah my entire career is based on fear <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no but f- i understand the the concept of taking that fear and creating yep. a, a message behind it and i guess what i'm trying to say is just that film is such a the consumers of film mm-hmm. are able to, yeah, kind of pick and choose what they want to feel, and it kind of allows their emotions to really jump on that particular bandwagon that they want to be on. Like, Big yeah, time. yeah, I, I want to just feel elated, and then you go through Netflix and look at the descriptions, and okay, this mm-hmm. this will help me experience that. <laughs> And exactly. then you have the uh, the flip side of that, the man that you spoke about, the older man that stood up and was like, I've never really understood this before. Yeah. Like he may not have been looking for, yeah. I want to better understand the, this concept of depression, but that's what he yeah. got out of it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, there's many layers. I always love that too, because like, um, like you could watch the original Star Wars movie and it's like, oh yeah, it's a story about like laser swords, wizards and stuff. It's like, actually it's about like, you know, leaving the home. And taking that risk on yeah. something that you believe in wholeheartedly is what you are about. So it's, it's, I love film for that because you could watch 
the same film 80 times and you could go into it saying like, I want to be scared for this. I want to be excited for this. Like you're saying, and then come out with it like, oh my God, I completely understand this thing that I wasn't even thinking about when I went in. Yeah. It's really cool. I want to ask both of you, because like Mike is a songwriter. Are are either of you ever maybe disappointed? I'll use this word, but maybe it's another emotion when the audience doesn't pick up on that part of it. So maybe you're writing a song Mm. that is meant to elicit a certain emotion, but somebody's just like, oh, I love dancing to this tune. And it's really the sob story. Like, how how important is that? Or is it kind of like, because I know we've had other artists also say, once this is out of my hands, it's no longer, I don't own it. It's not my responsibility. Like, how would you speak about that, Dylan? I had a, uh, uh, this is going to be the uh, analogy podcast today. Um, I had a film that I made in uh, college. It was called The Sister. And it was about a guy who was kind of like at the end of his um, uh, depression cycle. And he was like considering, you know, the the big bad end to it all. Um, and I showed it to a bunch of people. And I had the response that I expected from people, which was, uh also spoiler he's he it's okay he found a reason to live and it's like it's not Mm. i promise not all my movies are super sad um (laughs) most of them are but always happy endings uh so i showed a lot of people and some people had the response like they were crying because they knew about it and all that and then i had some people come up and say wow that guy's really selfish i'm like that's an interesting take on that i didn't expect it i kind of enjoy that difference um within people's reactions at first i will admit that i was kind of like especially as like a late teen, early 20s, I was like, they're not getting that. They're not understanding my art. This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. The more I've done it, the more I've realized it's cool because everybody's going to have a different um, subjective uh, feeling about it. So right. it's, there is sometimes where it's like, you know, there's a moment in a thing that I'm doing where I'm like, this is the moment. This is going to be the part where the crowd cheers and they throw their popcorn everywhere and just make a mess <laughs> of Cineplex. Um, but then nothing happens. And it's like, oh, that sucks. So there's like a little bit of like self- deflating in that because I've set up like certain moments that I'm hoping will happen. But for the majority of it, the second that kind of my work walks out the door, it is kind of what you're saying. Like it's not mine anymore. Mm -hmm. It's now the kind of the collective consciousness of whoever watches it and how they translate it. Yeah. Very cool. And for me, there's, there's a big difference between, between recorded music and live music Mm. because recorded music once it's out there, like I have no idea how people are responding unless I happen to be in the room when one of my songs comes on. Like I, I create something that I think will elicit certain emotions and feelings. And usually like if it's a slow song, like it's has a certain function it's going to accomplish. And if it's a upbeat song, like maybe you're going to be happy dancing, like put it on at a party and I've always tried to keep the listener in mind when I'm creating. Like at the at the end of the day, what is going to be happening when someone is playing this song? Are they going to throw it on at a party and people are just drinking beer and having an awesome time? Is someone maybe going to just be at a campfire and there's no one has a guitar, no musicians there, so they have a Bluetooth and yeah. uh, they're playing like you know quiet campfire like songs but i don't know where that's going to end up mm-hmm. i ha- i just do my best to create what i think will just fit certain scenarios and that's not the the whole point of songwriting it's like okay i need to write a song that people are going to dance to at a house party like 
people can find different meanings in it, yep. like you're saying, Dylan. But um, if I don't have any idea of what I'm creating, like it's, it, I can still create something that's good. But I think when I have all the little considerations of all the details, that just makes a better song. So I, I like to just focus on what it's for. Yeah. And then there's the whole live side of it. Like every audience is a different audience and they might react in a different way. Like I might play this song the exact same way one night and the whole crowd sings along to every word and it's just this magical experience. And then I play it another night and it doesn't have any of that same impact. So obviously you want the most positive experiences all the time because it just feels <laughs> yeah. good and you just like it but that's not life like you you have to be able to take the the good with the bad and yeah again like faster upbeat songs generally have a a different place than a, a slower mellow song so it's the advice you're often told as a creative person or or any entrepreneur for that matter is to know your target audience yeah. as well yeah. and i I appreciate what you're saying, Mike, is like, yeah, once it's received and you too, Dylan, like it's kind of it is what it is. You can't control that. But having that in mind uh, might guide the work. Mm -hmm. It's just whether or not there's a a level of um, disappointment or taking offense to if it's not received in the way that you want it. But it sounds like that has kind of maybe evolved or shifted for you. For me, it's the older I've I've gotten, the more. the more I've given up control, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. to to the response, because um, I, I think you're dead on. Like, because we, you and I, could probably make something good, but if the intent behind what we're doing from our own kind of consciousness going into it, yeah. like, if you make a song uh, and then I make a film, it's like if I'm just making it because I'm making it, it's it can be good, it yeah. can be technically good, but if the intent isn't there, um, I don't think it has a chance to be great. If mm-hmm. that makes sense. Um, one question I want to ask you, because obviously music and film is, is they're similar, but they're vastly different where yeah. if I have a film, you know, I might air it or premiere it in a couple of places and then I kind of move on from it. But for example, for you, like, you know, you put out slag heaps on your first album yeah. and how many years later you're still playing it. Do you see any kind of difference there with like a nostalgia playing a factor or just growth overall coming from your art? Yeah. It- Playing live shows is strange because we have now six or seven albums out yeah. and we can't play every song. I we, wish you we, could because I pay for that concert. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have to pick whatever, 15 songs and yep. make that a night. And you obviously want to showcase your newer stuff. Like if, if we put out a new album, which we will in the next little while, we want to show those songs. Yep. To the audience, but we have these other ones that it's a weird, weird thing that not every song on an album becomes a song that yeah. you play. And sometimes you know that. Yeah. Like I'm writing this song and I think it's an awesome song. Like we're probably not going to, we'll play this at an album release, but after that. Yeah. It's probably going to be retired <laughs> just because. Vaulted. Just because <laughs> the, the, the sheer numbers, like, okay, maybe we'll always plays a song like Babe Ruth because that's one that is our most listened to song. People seem to always like that. So we probably can't replace that in a set list Mm -hmm. with whatever track nine in an album. That's still song might be my favorite song of all time, but if it's not one that 
will resonate with the audience is you, you can't you have to pick your best songs eventually yeah totally and it's it's uh yeah it's just kind of a, a process but i don't know I, th- I think just as long as you create stuff that you believe in yep. all the time it doesn't really matter because like when i wrote slag heaps i i believed in that song yeah and i can go back and yeah maybe i want to change a few things about it but mm-hmm. It's kind of a representation of yeah, who I was, what my musical knowledge was, what yeah. I believed in, and in that exact moment in time. And maybe there are certain songs where I'm like, uh, I I just can't support what I said then, or whatever it may be. But for the most part, I think that yeah, I I believed in myself at that yeah. moment, so I I still do now. So if someone wanted to hear any song that we that we wrote, I would I would still play it just because cool. yeah, um, it's still a part of me maybe from a different time but is that similar for you in film and that it almost feels like a time capsule of your life yeah i i can relate to that quite a bit because every once in a while i'll go back like if i'm having just like a rough month where i'm like man imposter syndrome is just taking over and like what am i doing i'll go back and I'll be like okay how far have you come and part of me does like when i look back i'm like man i wish i could fix this now but that other part of me is like, no, well, this is where you were at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of look at that, learn from it, and and I guess love that aspect of it because it is showing like you've changed your morals, not morals, but like your, your higher beliefs have changed, your uh, goals, whether it's like, you know, on a moral level or like a political level or like if you're advocating for anything like that. Um, it's interesting to see and go back and be like, yeah, this is this is a time capsule for what I was at the time. I'm not that anymore. Um, but yeah, I find, I find it interesting. Um, when you, when you guys are, yeah, I'm so interested in this. this is, I'm going to turn this around. You guys are going to be the <laughs> guests today. Um, when you're doing like a set list for like, let's say the town here is for yeah. example, is there any sort of like narrative structure in mind for that? Or are you just kind of looking at it like, okay, these songs will pair together really well and this will be a good show. Or is there ever kind of like a story you're trying to tell musically within that? Not not necessarily a story, but it's more an energy thing. Cool. Like, if we're playing a rock show, we want to structure the set in a certain way where the audience's energy will be sustained and maybe there's a climax yep. and maybe it's just, we just have to be thoughtful of, yeah, what the audience is going to experience because cool. it's not just for us. Like, we're not just playing yep. on stage because we want to hear each other make sounds like we're playing because <laughs> people paid money to come see us yep. and our job is to entertain them. Cool. And I think it's, it's just creating something that is a cohesive show, you know, yep. like from, we pick an opening song because some songs are just better to open with mm-hmm. and whatever the definition of a good opening song is, I I think it's probably pretty vast and different for lots of people, but yeah, I I like to come out strong, like you know, like, like maybe um, some people want to start off really slow and just then build into something, but I like to open with a you know a, a, an upbeat song and yeah. keep it upbeat, and then maybe eventually slow it down a little, then bring it back up yeah. and bring it as high as we can go, and. Uh, one time we made a fake set list once and um we had uh the first song 
we we had themes behind these fake set lists for like um a little tour we were on and every night was something different it was like whatever canadian bands or something yeah and i forget what the theme of this one was but the second and the only thing i remember the second song in the set was uh civil war by guns and roses <laughs> <laughs> and i just thought that was the funniest thing a town hero's it, classic but the, the yeah. second song you would never play in a set would be like a ballad <laughs> it's like 18 minutes or yeah. something too. <laughs> you could open with civil war and like it kind of builds up and like or you could close with it or anywhere but the worst spot to ever play it would be the second song <laughs> like you know and the first song was like a super energetic one i forget what it was highway to hell or something and then it just drops right down and like that that would be like the worst set list ever but um yeah there is a very specific structure to a set uh, cool. but, but not necessarily a narrative because when you're picking from all your catalog yep there's hard to, hard to make a story out of that. Totally, yeah, that makes sense. If it's an album release, maybe, but yeah, yeah just a random show. It's different for an album, though. Like you would yeah. be really considerate of which song precedes the next, and like mm. certainly in Home, it's a concept album. Yeah. so there's very much a story. Oh yeah, told. Al- albums are always some type of story for sure. Yeah, we have a very very special sponsor of this episode that we both love dearly with all our hearts. The Rustic, Rustic Crust Pizza. Pizza. Yum yum yum. In Upper Tan Talon, Nova Scotia. These folks started off in a food truck and they now have a fully functioning restaurant. They've got a beer garden for the summertime. They get rented out for private events. They have everything there. Yeah, I can honestly say it's my favorite pizza in the world. Like, really? 10 out of 10. So delicious. It's my favorite spot to eat. And I play a lot of gigs there. They treat me like a god when I go there. They're so nice. It's hard to believe that a local pizza spot is such good supporters of the arts. They're also very supportive of community events. They have taken in a Ukrainian family. They're always giving to fundraising events. They're just amazing people across the board. And you have your art showcase there, too. I've got art up there right now and i have to say i love their pizza as well of course but their caesar salad is exceptional next level the pizza is wood fired which makes it absolutely delicious and the tomatoes and flour are both from italy they've got an awesome collection of local craft beer and wine so you're sure to have a great drink to pair with your pizza all of our guests that come to stay with us we bring them there for a meal you can find this sweet little restaurant at 10 sunny's road in upper Tan Talon. They're open Tuesday to Sunday year round, and their website is therusticcrustpizzeria.com. Yeah, you should definitely check it out if you're in the area. You can go to the beer garden, you can go inside. It's a cool house converted into a restaurant. Great people doing great things that we truly are huge fans of. So check them out now. Rustic, Rustic Crust! Rustic, Rustic crust. crust! Speaking of fake um, things, this yeah. is the funniest story, and, and I. It got funnier with age. I felt embarrassed at the time, but it's funnier with age. <laughs> so, for those who haven't seen it, the Town Here Sly Keeps video is basically a um, uh, torture video yeah. uh, where Bruce is torturing Mike for reasons that I, I'm just going to leave ambiguous. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's ever defined. I don't think we ever figured <laughs> yeah. it out. So, if you guys know, please don't. Wait. Um, but you guys, you guys put out a press release through uh, Music Nova Scotia <laughs> at the time. <laughs> 
And I wasn't brought up to speed on this. So I, suddenly I see a tweet. And again, I'm going to remind everybody. There's like bats with nails. There's like pulling teeth and everything in this And weren't video. all these actually instruments that your cousin had? Yeah. Like he just happened to have a one, bat with nails yeah, and, and a every, chain. And every <laughs> weapon we got for that video, we got from one person, my cousin. Uh, so, so Music Notes Culture puts out the... <laughs> That's this press release of the video, and it says, "The is something like the town heroes show you what a day in the life of the town heroes is in the new video for Slag Heaps." I'm like, "Uh oh, that's not correct." I was like, uh, "Guys, this is not right. This is not correct." It's like, "No, no, we did it on purpose. It was cool." It's like, "Oh, okay, cool." It's like you click, "Oh, a day in the life of the town heroes," and it opens with flashing lights and a guy bleeding from his nose and everything. <laughs> that video created yeah some interesting stuff online. Um, one uh, one guy on a YouTube video asked something um, it's like, where did all the weapons come from? And I said something like, oh, we're trained professionals. We've, we've taken courses on working with bats with nails and just like <laughs> like i took a six month bats in nails course and like it was a, obviously just a joke response and then we got interviewed shortly after and this guy like try, in a series of interviews like where did you take the uh bats with nails course at like is, is that available for the public i go uh Shetty camp, I believe it's a. You it's just an kept rolling with it. It's didn't a French you? Acadian thing. <laughs> All these poor journalists putting up with you guys. Yeah, but that is just bad journalism. Yeah, I suppose yeah. that's hilarious. Oh, I'm so glad that story has even further. Is that when you guys met? Was working on that? No, I oh. had. This is the probably the greatest story of my career. Um, <laughs> the way that I met the town heroes was a fluke. So. Uh, one of my first projects when I came up, I was still in college um, taking film when I was up here, but I was doing a lot of videos for Dalhousie University and I was doing some promo stuff um, for them. I did a song called The Student Poverty Song and it was like about the tuition hikes and like fighting that. Our follow-up, it was called See You in September, which was all about like, you know, welcoming younger people to Dal or, or whatever. And I know I've gotten so many people and says like, did you make that See You in September song? Yeah. I hate you. <laughs> That's all that played in the entire year. Uh, so, and these are George Woodhouse songs too. That's yes. right. Uh, thanks, George. Uh, <laughs> I love you. So, uh, George, I had been working with on the student poverty song, and then he brought me in to see it in September. And we were going. We were at the uh, music room in in Halifax. We were recording the song, and the original line was supposed to be about uh, our mayor at the time. And as we were recording it, like we're recording the song. And then George takes his heads off, headphones off. He's like, I don't know about that line because I don't think it's going to age well because like we're going to have a new mayor by the time this thing's out. So he just sits there for a couple of minutes and he says like, I got an idea. You see a couple of capers. Their names are Mike and Bruce. Uh, they ask you if you want, if uh, you, they want to help you fight a moose or whatever like that. Came up with it on the spot. I had no idea what the reference was because I had no idea who you guys were <laughs> yeah. at the time. I was like, all right, cool. Uh, and then because of that, like we worked together on that video where uh, for some reason, and I have yet to understand why they let us do this, but the Halifax Mooseheads lent us their mascot to literally beat up on the Halifax pier. <laughs> yeah. um, but then we met and then uh, like months later, I was sitting in a, in the Walmart McDonald's with my mother eating food. And I get a text, I don't know why I had to preface eating food. I don't know what else I'd be doing in a McDonald's, but I, I got a text from Bruce that said, hey, uh, we're thinking about doing a music video. Would you be interested? Unfortunately, we'd have to shoot it in New York City. I'm like, 
Oh yeah, no, that sounds oh, I awful. I about this. Yes. Yeah. So we met because George ad libbed the line in like less than a minute uh, on See You in September. It's I insane. did not know there was a George Woodhouse connection. Didn't oh yeah. Know yeah. that you guys even knew each other, much less that being the linkage, and that the first time you guys really met was going to New York because Mike and I had just kind of met during that time too. Yeah. Like, yeah. We weren't really dating, but. I knew that this trip was happening and you yep. were going to see all the highlights. So fun. It was what it like, because that was like, you know, it, the Dalhousie stuff, I, I see more like they were music videos, but they were more promotional material for a company or, or whatever. The New York City one was really like my first music video ever. So the fact that it's like, yeah, this is your first video. We're going to fly to New York. <laughs> like, okay, cool. Sweet. I should buy a camera probably. <laughs> we, uh, we covered more ground in what three days, I guess, two and a half days, than I think anyone has ever in a trip to New York. And yeah. that's like the footage you got. You could probably make twenty videos out of it. There, there are at least like a hundred and fifty versions of what that video could be. Yeah, because we got so much footage. Some didn't make it. Like we could probably make an like all the footage together. We could probably make like a two hour film. <laughs> yeah, just the... that'll be your next full feature. <laughs> That's yeah. The the New York City be like a Martin Scorsese thing. It'll be four hours. It'd be awesome. <laughs> okay, we get it. These guys walked around New York for a long time and experienced everything. It's just people would hate us by the end of it. <laughs> It's so oh, fun. Man. And yeah, the New York was the first one and then we shot Slag Heaps yeah. after. Yeah. Slag Heaps was, was released first. Yes. Um Yeah, because it was the, I think it was the album thing too, because you guys were working on Sunday movies and then it ended up being that uh something got signed or whatever and then it got delayed. But it, it's so funny to like <laughs> to look back and be like, how'd your career start as a professional? I had two Cape Bretoners haul me to New York City for three days, and we did a marathon tour, and it was awesome. That's amazing. <laughs> That's how it started. And it was a pretty fun trip, for sure. It was, it was well, working the whole time, but still, you're yeah. just taking, taking in an amazing city. But So is your story, like, you grew up in small town South Shore, Nova yep. Scotia? Barrington Passages. And oh. had an interest in film, which we can talk about maybe where that inspiration came. For and sure, then yeah. you're into... University, George Woodhouse, and then to New York. Like that feels yeah. like a big jump from small town living. I have this dream. Now I'm going to New York City. <laughs> I, I think I can thank my mother and George Woodhouse for the career I have today. Uh, yeah. So like when I was super young, before I even understood that filmmaking was a career, um, th the the one moment that I can kind of square away is like that was the moment that I knew that I what I wanted to do. Uh, Mom would show me movies on like VHS. We'd go rent from ten to ten video at the time. And we'd get like a VHS a week and I'd watch it. And one week she got Jurassic Park. And mm. the moment that the T-Rex comes out of the cage was the moment where I was like, okay, this th this is what I want to do. And I even turned to mom at like, I don't know how old it was. I must have been like six or seven. I was like, how do they do that? So it wasn't like, my interest wasn't like, wow, look, dinosaur. It was, mm -hmm. how'd they get him on the screen though? Yes. He's a dinosaur. So going from that, I jumped into uh, what mom absolutely hated was I joined up with five other guys and we created a jackass ripoff group called the Dukes of Haggard. Um, and we started doing stunts to the uh, chagrin of the entire community, I'm sure. Um, but after that, and it, it was kind of, that was kind of my way to get into it because I just picked up a camera and said, I want to shoot something. And at the time, I was really into kind of jackass. Um, so that got me into it. But after we had kind of finished doing the Dukes of Haggard stuff, I realized like, well, 
when I got kind of sparked into this, it wasn't the stunts or whatever that got me into it. It was the spectacle and the story. And that's where I shifted more into, okay, I want to do narrative now. I want to do scripted. And one of my biggest dreams was doing a music video. So when I got to Halifax, I went through school, met George, eventually met Town Heroes. It gave me that in to go into music videos. And that I found allowed me to experiment and understand what I wanted to do in such a great way. So then when I did do my own narrative stuff, I felt kind of better about like, I can do this Mm -hmm. because we've done music videos. Music videos I find are such an incredible experimental platform where it's like, you know what you're going for, you know what you want to do. In the most dry, cynical sense, you're making a commercial for an album. But really, it's a way to add visuals to somebody's art, being the music, and I always found that fun. So it kind of went from like, you know, watching VHS movies uh, as a kid to jumping out of trees and shopping carts as a teen into (laughs) music videos in my early 20s and then kind of forming into the bigger projects like feature films and TV. But yeah, that's kind of how it it all went. Yeah. And where are you now? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, <laughs> I just finished, uh, as I mentioned, The Last Divide two years ago. That was kind of my big project. And I'll say this, and, and it's a huge thing I think a lot of creatives can kind of understand too. I've done like over 30 music videos, four feature, uh, four short films, three feature films. I've done like over 100 episodes of television. The Last Divide series that aired last year was the first time I sat down and I said, I'm happy with this. Like, I'm really happy with this. I'm happy it went out the way it did. I'm, I'm happy with the story. So I think where I'm at now is I'm at this situation where I'm trusting myself a lot more than I was before. And I'm understanding what I want to accomplish as a filmmaker and what I want to accomplish is really just a storyteller and an artist at the end of the day. So now I'm working on a couple of projects I can't talk about yet. Um, but the ones that I can kind of talk about is I'm shifting more into horror and sci-fi. Yeah. Um, because I think that, especially with horror, I find, and this might just be me, but if, if I watch a film that's like kind of a slice of life thing where it's just like, you know, two actors and it's in a real location and they're just having real conversations, I'll get something out of that, but it won't be as much as I get out of, say, a science fiction movie that on the surface seems like science fiction, just kind of a crazy action film. But then you realize like when you dig deeper and horror does this too, there's actually a very simple message being told within these stories. Like you, you watch um, kind of any horror film and you think, Oh yeah, monsters scary. That's crazy. The darkness sucks. But then you look at it, it might be like an allegory for like loss or an allegory for like, um, you know, suffering, uh, loss of a family member or like the bigger picture of, you know, whatever's going on in the world. So I'm, I'm at the stage now where I'm, I, I'm going after the big kind of thing. Um, and I want to, I want to do something that nobody has ever seen before. And kind of, I've learned from, you know, the people that I loved and what shaped my career. And now I kind of want to take what I learned, put my own spin on it and see what I can accomplish. So I think that's kind of where I'm at now. Yeah. Nice. What has changed recently for you, and maybe it's just a matter of experience, mm-hmm. that makes you feel satisfied with the work that you're doing? Uh, this is, it, it's, <laughs> I'm going to pick my words here. Uh, there was a lot in my entire career, without getting specific, that was just very toxic and 
I I just kind of in a very simple sense, I just got beaten down over the years and working and, with the town heroes. Yeah, uh, I tell you, man, <laughs> Bruce Gillis needs to be <laughs> locked up. No, I'm kidding. Um, it it was just like I was in scenarios that were just very. Um, I wasn't being not appreciated because I think that word's like I don't want to be on a throne or anything, but I just wasn't being respected in a lot of ways, and that can tear down on you quite a bit because when you have ideas and you're excited to share them and then when you share them you're immediately put like in a corner saying like no you can't do that that's ridiculous it's like oh okay recently over the past couple years i've gotten myself um out of those situations those toxic kind of situations and now i'm starting to find that love again for film which i think went away for a little bit um yeah it just became it became a thing where i just i felt like i wasn't saying anything I was making all this stuff and I was working nonstop. I was making like, you know, okay money. And it just felt like I was just like, uh, almost like a robot yeah. at that point. With The Last Divide, there was a situation where um, originally it was going to be for another company, but it ended up uh, last minute becoming a part of my company, Riverpoint Studios. So I gained that control. And within that, I said, okay, if I'm going to do this, I need to do it kind of my way. I need to trust my instincts. I need to trust my gut. And I need to go for this full tilt. Um, and I think it was the first time that I did that without stepping on eggshells, without kind of like, you know, trying to hide in the corner. I just said, this is a story I want to tell. Uh, this is how I want to tell it. These are the people I want to have uh, help me tell that story. Let's go. And I think that was the game changer for me, is not being in a situation where I had to hide my love and interest of what I was doing, but surrounding myself with people who said, hell yeah. How do we accomplish that? Let's do it. Yes. That was a huge shift. Um, and, and you you being you is the ultimate thing in the end. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. I'm very, uh, <laughs> I don't like compliments. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's true though, because I, I think, you know, there was, for a lot of years there, I just felt like there was that, kind of harking back to what I said earlier, there was that eight-year-old inside trying to tear himself out of this kind of shell of what I had become because I, I got cynical. I just got like, you know, very angry with everything because it's like, this can't be it. And I had everybody telling me like, this is it. It's like, there's no way this can't be the level in which like now I've succeeded. I've hit the top. This is it. Um, and another huge part of that too uh, was kind of a better understanding of my mental health as well and realizing that things that were happening in my career and things that people were doing um, around me and just like this toxic environment, it was draining me from any mm -hmm. sort of like optimism or happiness about what I was doing. Um, but thankfully, through friends, family, and a very great doctor who unfortunately passed away this year, which really sucks, um, I got what I probably should have gotten a very long time ago, but it was a formal diagnosis with ADHD. Mm -hmm. And understanding that and being able to look at all the times that I was kind of like hard on myself where I couldn't hit a deadline or like all this stuff where I was just like, wow, am I failing at this? Getting the opportunity to understand what ADHD is and getting an opportunity to also understand, because I also have uh, depression and anxiety, understanding those three things and how it affected what I was doing. Um, and obviously, like I still fight with it all the time, but getting a better understanding of it and knowing that like, hey, when I'm feeling anxious or overwhelmed, knowing, okay, relax, where's it coming from? What's causing it? Is it your ADHD? Is it depression? Is it anxiety? How do you handle that? That's allowed me to get out of those long-term kind of dark spots and have them be like a day or two. And now I can kind of get back to my work and trust myself. So it's a mixture of all those things, getting out of a toxic environment, 
understanding my mind a lot better. And then also the biggest thing, you know, trusting myself. Because I mean, you're right. I made a joke, but you're right. Like it's, it's on me to figure that out. And it took a while. And I don't regret, to a certain extent, I don't regret the experiences I had. I wish some of them were very different. But I'm glad that I got to see that side of it so that I know, okay, it can be bad. Um, not just for me, but for crew members, for cast members all over the industry. There are people that suck. Mm. <laughs> and there are people that will just suck the life out of you. They will treat you like garbage or a tool for their own like financial game. Um, but understanding that that's there and seeing how to, you know, um, combat that on a personal level and as a boss running my own studio has been huge and kind of like getting me to the point where I'm very happy with my work. I'm happy with how it got made. And now I feel like whatever I next make next, I'll be better at it. So yeah, it's kind of, yeah. It's such a comfort to understand these things about ourselves, yeah. to give a bit of reason, explanation and, and management ultimately. Hugely. Are you seeing some of these same struggles in others, maybe in the film industry or just general creatives? I think at first I wasn't noticing it because I didn't understand it, yeah. if that makes sense. You know, I had had my own kind of struggles with it and I kind of understood it from my own perspective, but it, it's the term masking is huge within mental health where people will put on that mask to hide the stuff that they're going through, whether it's anxiety or, or anything really. Um, so a lot of people are really good at masking in the film industry. And the more that I got close with people, the more I talked to people and that kind of mask started shaking away. I think there's a huge disconnect between, you know, the people that are making the decisions and the ones that are going out and making the, the content or the shows. Um, I don't think ADHD is understanded even on a 5% level. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people think that, oh, distraction, oh my God, they're going all over the place. It's much deeper than that. It's, you know, it's a function that will just stop you from accomplishing anything. It will just kind of like make you overthink everything like that. And I think there's a, there's almost this weird expectation that like most likely if, if an artist is making art, they're probably dealing with some sort of issue, whether it's a mental health issue or something else. So I think everybody's kind of dealing with that. But I am seeing that now that, especially the next generation are being more open and open to talking about this thing and being more open about admitting like, hey, you doing this is affecting me. Please don't do that. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing more like, okay, I wasn't the only one. There's a lot of people in this industry that are dealing with mental health problems, but because of that power dynamic, like they don't want to get fired. So they can't say, Hey, I need a day off because I'm literally crying in bed and I can't get out. They'll go to work and they'll just deal with it because they know that somebody else is in line to take that job. Um, I'm working on something now. I don't know when it's going to come out. It's kind of really early, but I, I'm working on a documentary that kind of jumps into that so hopefully people can understand it and it's going to focus specifically on um, the film world and mental health and really what it's like uh, for everybody from the production assistant to you know an art director or a director himself or him or herself like anything within that i'd like to see like okay what's actually happening so we can get a baseline with what's happening and how do we fix that and make it better but to answer your question the more and more time goes on the more i'm seeing uh, more of it yeah. I've seen even specifically more conversation and, and diagnosis really with ADHD in particular. Me too. Yeah. I don't know if that's just maybe new research or science, uh, the ability to diagnose, the openness for people maybe to seek that help. Yeah. Um, how does it impact like 
in your management of it, are you finding that just having the information that, okay, I have this diagnosis, this gives sense to some of my behavior? Or is it more like, I know you, we, you talked about before we aired that you've taken some time off and that might not have been yeah. something you've done in the past. Do you attribute that to knowing yourself more? Yes. Um, half and half with that with uh, specifically taking time off. And then I'll jump kind of into your first question. The time off thing, I, I hit a point because I had done this for 13 years straight with or 12 years straight with a no break. And um, one of the biggest pieces of advice that I got as a young filmmaker, which I want to tell any young filmmaker uh, listening to this, this is not good advice is that if somebody, if you're not doing it, somebody else is. So it puts that pressure on you to be like, you need to be working your butt off 24-7 or you're never going to make it. So I did that for 12 years and I crashed hard, like to the point where I'd never wanted to see another movie again. Um, it was very hard for me to even pick up my phone and text anybody. It was just like this kind of messy, uh, complete exhaustion happening all at once. So it's almost like I needed the time off, but I was forced the time off. But with that time off, it allowed me to understand more and more about the ADHD and give me the proper time to research it. Because if I had been, say if I had been diagnosed in like, say, 2013, 14, which was kind of like when I was doing a lot, I was doing like 15, 16 projects a year. I don't think I would have taken the time to actually understand it and understand myself because I would have been project to project. And I think too, actually kind of piggybacking off that, I think artists use their projects as therapy. So I think what I was doing, or at least what I was tricking my mind into thinking I was doing was, well, no, I have to do this other project because it allows me to feel better about myself or allows me to kind of be outside of my own kind of mind and voice. Um, with the ADHD thing, I it, it, it changes daily because I'm still kind of early in the process of, of kind of understanding the management side of it. But I find that it, understanding what, ADHD encompasses, which I think is the big kind of uh, um, misunderstanding, I think, in a lot of the world right now, understanding that, uh, you know, rejection is a huge part of ADHD. Um, most people with ADHD that I've kind of talked to um, is that, you know, one email worded wrongly that maybe you read in a way that might not even be true could shut you down for two days. Because now right. you think, this person hates me. I've done everything wrong. Why am I doing this? Crap. When I got to the point of understanding that and understanding that like what I'm feeling is not right by tomorrow, I'm not going to feel this way and I'm good. Um, it again, kind of lowers the amount of time I need to understand it. It, it. There's a word for it. It's rejection. I can't remember the thing. Rejection sensitive something where it's, it's, it's very common in ADHD um, people where, you know, if you get a slight bit of criticism back, it seems like somebody just like, burn your house down it kind of feels that way and it's very hard to navigate through that when you're doing art because art is so well, i was just gonna say buddy being an artist and, I uh, yeah i don't know why we I live just... in rejection <laughs> yeah it's just the rejection business yeah so it's so getting an understanding of that and a kind of understanding like um what was coming from where allowed i think me and a lot of people to say like okay now i have adhd because I had all these things I didn't understand, but then when I talked to somebody and they put them all together, it's like, okay, that makes sense. Um, so yeah, I think it's like 50, 50. It's like I'm being forced because of it to kind of like slow down, but also because I'm slowing down, I'm understanding it better mm -hmm. so that hopefully in the future, it doesn't come like a train and knock me out for a month or this past, I took a break for like seven, eight months. Um, 
I'm hoping to be able to kind of choose my downtime and not be so focused on, well, I'll go until I burn out type of thing. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. And I, um, I'm also thinking about, I imagine so many people can relate to some of the symptoms yeah. of ADHD. Hugely. And it left being undiagnosed would then perhaps lead to things like depression because you're yeah. struggling with something like rejection on the regular not knowing why, yep. telling yourself these stories, and then you're feeling lousy even more so. Yeah. Yeah. My doctor used to call it the soup. Yeah. Uh, which is like the three mental health issues that I personally deal with, anxiety, depression, and ADHD. And um, before he passed away, we were in the process of like, okay, you know, I, I've had doctors in the past say like, you'll be fine, just like go for a walk or whatever. It's like, well, that's not fair because I have a brain thing that's not allowing me to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm, what I, what my doctor was talking about and what we did was we took one at a time. So we focused on anxiety first, we went into depression and then, uh, we went into ADHD because what we wanted to understand was, okay, if you take care of the anxiety, did the depression go away? Right. So instead of flooding me with three different medications and not knowing what's, what's going on, we took it one step at a time. Um, so I think it's, it's a huge thing when, when you can kind of, um, I won't say control because, again, I'm very early into this. Uh, but when you can understand and kind of make your way through that maze of ADHD, your depression has less of a chance to attack. Your anxiety has less of a chance to attack. Or if you get anxious and then all of a sudden, why am I anxious? Oh, it's because it's email. Now I'm back into the ADHD thing. They're all like married and it's awful and I very much want them divorced. But um, hmm. it is very much like one dictates the other and... It all depends on like, you know, if I can take care of one, well, less than the other, maybe, maybe not, yeah. but they are definitely related. Yeah. This makes total sense. Yeah. If you're comfortable to talk about it, as far as your film goes, the documentary on yep. capturing this subject, is your hope or plan to like interview other people that may have had this experience or what will your creative approach be to telling this story? The the goal with um, kind of how we're going to do it is I just I'd like to interview a lot of people. It's I'm kind of going backwards with how to make this documentary. And this is not advice. I don't follow this uh, kids at home. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm almost doing the interviews first and then figuring out what the documentary is about after, if that makes sense. So I'm going to interview a bunch of people, get a, a baseline understanding of like, OK, where are we at? What is the biggest kind of thing? Um in, in actually, in a really simple way, I can almost tell you that, like, I have the first and second act planned. The third act will be dictated by who I interview um, and whose story wants to get shared and stuff like that. So that's kind of the approach of just going right there, getting people in a chair, talking to them one on one and seeing, like, what is your experience? Mm -hmm. And then later on trying to figure out, well, what do we do now? How do we fix this? So, yeah, it's kind Maybe. of the way. Yeah. Well, for, first off, thanks for sharing all that yeah. about yeah. Uh, the the struggles you've gone through and just how you've learned to, to manage it and cope with it, I guess. Like, cause I don't think you ever can fully, yeah. you can't fix it. Like you, you learn to, to live with it and deal with it and be happy. Exactly. Yep. In, in every, your day to day life in, in, in working with it. Yep. But when I first met you, you were, I think, 19, maybe Pretty you were sure. 20. <clears throat> yep. You still look 19, yeah. by the way. And your <laughs> mom still that. looks 22. So. <laughs> my, my mom, yeah, my mom's been like perpetually 20. Yeah. <laughs> <her> life, so. <laughs> I remember when we met you and uh, 
we we filmed those first few few videos. Right? Yeah, oh, Dylan is nineteen. Look what he's cooking <laughs> up, and you've gone on to create all these amazing things. And during that, you were struggling with yep. these undiagnosed issues, and now you're you're dialing those in and learning to work with them, and you've accomplished like an incredible amount already. And right now you're getting to the point where you're starting to be happy with your work. You're, yeah. you're inspired to keep going. And exactly. And like when I first met you, like we said, this guy is going to take over the world. And I still see that. And yeah. right now I feel like you're, you're in a phase of your life and career where the sky truly is the limit. Yeah. It, it, um, well, first off, thank you. Cause that's an uh, incredible, um, it is funny to hear that and think back because like at the time we were making those videos, like I was just like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I really hope they don't figure out I don't know what I'm doing because this is all like I'm just guessing. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's this weird part where it's like I, I was able through, you know, getting myself out of the environments I was talking about, understanding my mental health, going back and seeing instances where it's like, oh, wow, this thing would have happened differently had I known. Yeah it allowed me to get the cement out of the ceiling and replace it with glass. And now I feel like I can just break through that thing. And like, I, like I legitimately, this is going to be the most like extreme example, but I feel like tomorrow I could walk into the Disney lot and I'd be able to direct star Wars. I just feel confident in yeah. myself on that level, not cocky. Um, and I'm not saying I'm better than anybody. I just feel like I finally understand myself, my directing self. And more importantly, like kind of where my heart, soul and brain collide. Yeah. And now I'm feeling uh, a lot better so yeah i appreciate that though because those i gotta be honest without the town heroes i don't know where i would have gotten my start um uh, you you would have somewhere i'm buddy. stubborn yeah <laughs> i would have found it but just having you guys being so like giving and and like it was just an, this incredible start to you know have people wanting to make this work and make art and have fun with it and everything and it's just like it was this perfect kind of transition into out of school into the work field, running yeah. my own business and everything like that. So yeah, I thank you guys immensely. Oh, well, we, um, we were kind of just getting going then too. So yeah. it was beneficial to us as well. Shared experience. Yeah. But your level, Dylan, you've always had such a high level of self-awareness and maturity. And while you're still learning these things about yourselves, and I mean, hopefully that will never stop for yeah, any yeah. of us that we're always learning. But like you and I really... I mean, we met, but I had interviewed you for yes. my thesis research way yep. back when about being an artist and working in a capitalist society. And, yeah. you know, are you creating work that's going to just make you money or is it inspired? And like you're saying, Mike, you were so young and it was the interview that stood out the most to me because you're <laughs> you were so articulate and thoughtful. You were appreciative of the opportunity, but I just... I guess I associated it, which I wouldn't do as much now, but I was impressed by how young you were and how you were able to speak about y yourself, really, yeah. in those ways. And so has that always been important to you, I suppose, to like, is knowing yourself mm. a way, like a path towards, be it creative success, life success, it just seems like something that's just come naturally to you all along. Yeah, it's it's funny that you say that because, and I, and I guarantee you a lot of artists, uh, maybe even some in the room right now will be able to relate to that. It's like the outward showing of who I was at the time 
was not what I was feeling on the inside, right? right? It almost, I think, back then felt like a um, survival mechanic where it's like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I know I'm young. I need to take this seriously. I need to research the hell out of filmmaking and music videos and, and everything, and I need to be in it. Uh, I need to not pretend or fake, but like I need to present myself as if I belong in this conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that would then I'd go home, I'd be like, I... I don't know how to shoot New York. I don't even have a memory card. Uh, oh, crap. What do I do? We leave tomorrow and all this stuff. Um, so it's been important for me in the beginning to present myself as professional for opportunities. Now, though, I feel it's important because I've found how important words can be. Mm -hmm. And I found how important that if I understand myself and I understand what I want to say, and I'm not saying other people's words and regurgitating like, you know, an, an opinion that maybe I don't agree with, but I'm agreeing just because you're like, oh, I have to because this is the way it is. That has allowed me to be able to use my words more and help people in a way, like kind of find what they want to do. And it and it helped me find myself. So that understanding myself allowed me to get, go from like, not fake maturity. I, I don't know quite the word for this, but not, um, when I'm on set now and I go home, they're the same person where before I think it was like when I'm on set, I'm the director Dylan. And when I go home, I'm like in over my head feeling. Mm -hmm. But the more that I have learned about myself, especially on a personal level and not just film, which is huge. Anybody, any film bros out there or leaving school and everything. Um, don't just study film, study yourself, study humans, study everything. Sociology was my favorite class in high school because of that. Cause I'm understanding it. But the more you understand yourself, uh, not only on a art and film level, but on a personal, deep, you know, spiritual, if you, if that's your thing or anything like that, when you understand yourself, then it doesn't become work to kind of be mature and to kind of um, act like you're not 19 and that you're actually 35. So I think it's, it's less tiring, if that makes sense now. Yes. It's important because now I think the words that I say are meaningful and that they are important and I'm not kind of like, you know, just peacocking for the sake of it. Now I feel like, okay, yeah, I feel better now. And it's just like, it's less work to be me. You used yeah. the word masking earlier yes. and, and that's exhausting. Oh man. Yes. <laughs> Somebody used the quote, I don't know where it originates, but it, um, she said, you choose your heart. Mm. So it's very hard to show up with that mask on, even yep. though you think it's making your life easier by fitting in or fake it till you make it or whatever. Yep. And then you realize, yes, it may be vulnerable or, quote, hard yep. to show up as myself, but isn't that easier than a fake hard? Absolutely, yeah. And, and I will say, like, I don't think I ever faked in terms of, like, presenting myself as anything different than I was. Yeah. But I do think I censored myself a lot when yes. I was young. Because when I had an idea in a room of, like, people that I looked up to, I'm like, well, what matters if I share my idea? These people know so much more than me. But then when I got past that point, and I saw... It took a while for me to get here, but when I saw that the filmmaking process isn't a ladder, it's like a flat line and everybody's working for the same thing. You know what I mean? Like, it's not that like, oh yeah, we're working for the big guy up top and then there's, he's got a boss and then that boss has a boss and everything like that. When I realized that like, no, we're all working together and using that collaborative nature much better than I was originally and not carrying the entire load on my back all the time, uh, I felt so much better about taking that mask off because then i know like we have li i have like-minded people around me who just want to make this work um so that was a huge thing uh yeah mm -hmm. dylan what are your top five movies of all time 
Oh, you start with you start this podcast with. So what's the point of what you do? And now you're going to make me choose my favorite kids. Uh, it no, doesn't I, doesn't have to be. What are five great movies? We just had a podcast Kristen? party recently for all of our first year guests. So Dylan, you'll be invited to next year's party. Oh, I cannot wait. But Mike had a list of questions set up in here in the studio that all of our guests were supposed to answer, and one of them was. If you could say any message to the whole world, what would it be? Like on a billboard or and so we're going through some of these recording and everyone's like, What the fuck? Like I can't answer this question. And so uh anyways, we'll list the filmmakers' top five favorite films, which also feels impossible. I can't. I can't. I don't like being put on the spot like this. Well, it's happening. (laughs) I uh I definitely know my top five. Um, it's actually funny. A friend of mine, Noah Brown, who is also a fantastic filmmaker who has a film called Sifting on Eastlink um, Community TV, if you have that. Um, we were actually, we're doing this thing this year where we're writing down our top 100 movies because we've never really done that. Like, we love films, but we've never kind of made a list of like, what are the films? So top five, you know, I'm only going to give you the first one in order and the other four are kind of like, yeah. whatever. Mm-hmm. Star Wars A New Hope was my favorite film of all time. Um, okay. uh, when I first saw it, like it was along with Jurassic Park, the film that just sparked that love, what I do. Yeah. Uh, and then the other four are, there's an independent film called Candy that has Heath Ledger and Abby Cornish in it. And it's about uh, these two heroin addicts and how their kind of romance plays into this addiction thing. I found it when I was in high school because I got really interested in the idea of heroin being huge in the arts and why and yeah. i kind of want to understand that so i went down a rabbit hole and i found one of my favorite films of all time candy i hadn't mm. thought about that movie in years you've seen that movie i have seen You're that the movie only person i know that's seen that movie yeah <laughs> and, and like i say i i have not heard it spoken about or it's even crossed yep. my mind in yeah 20 years i'm sure okay keep going this no, is exciting okay. now uh i have to it's hard to pick a spielberg movie but i do have one and et has always been yeah. my favorite um the Good, the Bad, the Ugly is my favorite Western of all time. And arguably, I think it's the greatest visual film of all time. Uh, whenever I make something like where I'm a camera operator, I watch that film prior to. Mm. That's four, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Fifth. Ooh. Fifth, I'm going to go with my favorite horror film, which is Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Three. Warriors. Whoa. I, I realized pretty uh, recently that I really love team up movies where it's like something is chasing individuals and then they come together to kind of take that individual thing down, which Dream Warriors is like the perfect example of that. So I think if anybody asks me like on the street, hey, what are five films that you love? That's probably the list I give. Okay. It's interchangeable depending on the day. Yes. Like tomorrow it could be like the first movie I ever saw in theaters was Muppet Treasure Island. That seeps in there every once in a yeah. while. Um a new movie that just came out called Skinmarink on Shudder, which is arguably my new favorite horror film of all time. Sorry, Freddy Krueger. Uh, that's kind of seeped in there. Um, it changes often, but if anybody asks me, like, what are your five? Those ones are pretty, like, they're always in the conversation. So okay. I'd say, yeah, those are the five. I like. Mike's looking at me, which means <laughs> no, it's my I... turn. <laughs> I, I might not get five, and I've not put thought into this, so I know with certainty that I'm overlooking something. Five good movies but i three come to mind and i'll speak about those and why first is return of the jedi and part of this is prompted by you referencing star wars but i I mean i love that movie just for yes the creativity i can better understand and um i I guess respect admire the craftsmanship that went into it now as an adult what i loved about it as a kid was that 
we had we had two channels growing up, so we didn't have cable television, yeah. and we had maybe six or seven VHS tapes that my brother and I watched a million times because that was the only television we really had. Return of the Jedi being one of them, and it yeah. was my older brother's favorite movie, and me wanting him to like me and include me was part of the reason that I grew to love this film so much because he would watch it all the time. And when they did the remake of it, we went to the local theater and I went with a boy because we were in junior high and I knew every line to the movie. (laughs) So I mega impressed my boy date. Nice. But I I truly did love that film and the connection I had with my brother. Watch out, Mike. Yeah, Mm. exactly. It just also takes one film. (laughs) The second, for a similar reason, is Dirty Dancing. Awesome. Because me and my high school group of friends, like that to me is nostalgia. It was sort of the soundtrack to those high school years for us. It really like shone a light on, I guess, the for me, especially at that age, because I think Baby was 17 in the film. Yeah. And so... I felt like we were watching something that could in a dream world happen to us. Yeah. So I liked that. Yeah, it felt like a bit of this mirror imaging happening. And the third film, Dylan, you might know this one is called Baraka. I do. I haven't seen it, but I know what you're talking about. I'm going to add it to my list. (laughs) So this is not like a story told, but it's kind of a compilation that um, captures a number of different cultures and music around the world. And I was first exposed to Baraka, maybe 1920, when you're first, having grown up in a small town in particular, first being exposed to other ideas and concepts and fashion and cultural practices. And I loved how much I took away from that as a discovery into what else the world could be. Yeah, It really made me think. I think it was one of the first pieces of art that made me think philosophically looking back. And I have watched that probably more than any other film out there. Because when I first discovered it was just like repeat, repeat, repeat. And it's beautifully done. Music's gorgeous. So I'll leave it at three. Well, it's nice to have a connection to all of them. Yeah. it's. I guess that's a great thing about film that it's can take you to the first time you saw it or yeah. Yeah. what was happening in your life or how it opened up your eyes. It's it's really cool in that way because uh, the first film that my sister ever uh, saw in theaters, um, we used to go to a uh, campground called Pondhook Campground uh, near Liverpool uh, in Nova Scotia. And the first movie um, we ever took her to was uh, Brother Bear, the animated film like way back when. So now I have like this really... Um, huge love of that film not necessarily because of the film itself but because of the experience that i had watching that film watching my four-year-old sister run around and me being scared that she was going to get behind the screen and electrocute herself (laughs) it's like that it's it's amazing what film can do in that way even if you don't necessarily enjoy the film there's an experience you had that you will never have to get rid of so yeah exactly yeah okay you go mike okay uh these are not in order (laughs) i don't even know which ones i'm going to say but i'm just going to think of five but uh, right off the bat, I'm going to go back to the same year. They were both released, Shawshank Redemption and Forrest Gump. Nice. Um, Shawshank is, I think, one of the best movies ever made easily. It's um, a perfect film. It's the only film I'll ever say. No, that's a perfect movie. <laughs> yeah, it just touches on every possible emotion yep. you could feel. And 
It was that the one, which was the film that won all the awards and the other one was For, nominated. <laughs> Forrest Gump won all the awards. Shawshank didn't win any Oscars. Which is baffling to me yes yeah it's a shame okay number four or in no, uh, so those, no order those two, um, or yeah number three i've always been a huge fan it's a super weird movie uh of being john malkovich yes it's uh i don't know it just kind of takes you down this weird road where your brain is just thinking of so many different scenarios and just possibilities and that's uh, kind of I like I like when when I'm forced to forced to think outside the box a little bit, and that really yeah drives that home big time. Uh, that's three. Uh, I'll say for nostalgia's sake, the same as Dirty Dancing. I'm gonna say Bloodsport, which is a Van, Van Damme movie. I don't know if anybody's ever said the sentence, same as Dirty Dancing, blood sports. <laughs> I watched that with my friends when I was a young boy, and we watched it just on repeat, and we knew every move in it, and we tried to do spin kicks and do the splits like Van Damme. And... Is that the one where they pull his legs open actively with the ropes? That's every Van Damme movie. <laughs> and commercially, he's never done anything too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and another completely random one. Well, I rented at the R&R Dairy, Redmond's Convenience Store, and it was called Welfare Party. And uh, no one's ever heard of it but me and my friends. <laughs> and it's uh, it basically um, a funnier version, funnier, more X-rated version of the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> where- oh <my> God. <laughs> Where this you could have given me fifty days to guess what you're about to say next. That wasn't even remotely on the list. And uh, they, yeah, this family comes across this sum of money for some reason, and they move into a rich neighborhood. And uh, it's originally I didn't even know this at the time because I was so stupid. But it's not even in English. It's overdubbed. It's a German movie. We found out years later because James's wife is German. Yes. And she's like, oh, the Flodders. It's originally called the Flodders and was like basically a huge hit in Germany, <laughs> like similar to like Dumb and Dumber here, yeah. just, a, just pure comedy kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, my cousin actually found a stream off the Flodders recently. And so Welfare Party was just kind wow. of a legendary. I've never heard you talk about this ever. No, <laughs> me and James talk about it pretty much every time we chat, but... Uh, <laughs> This this isn't a scenario where I'm going to go Google this and it's going to be like training with nail bats, right? Like this exists. You it exists. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, exactly. welfare party is a real thing. <laughs> well, uh, one other movie I'm going to suggest to you, this is probably like, it's, this is no, nowhere even near my top 10, but it's just the crazy, you just talking about this reminding me of this. I suggest everybody watches the film Tammy and the T-Rex. Have you ever heard of this movie? No. No. If you have Shutter, I think it's still on, uh, still on there. So I found out about it because I'd seen like a meme about it online. But the premise of it, it is like a B-movie, like schlocky, horribly made, uh, not horribly, I can say horribly made, but it was just like, they wanted to make Jurassic Park, but they did not have the budget for a T-Rex. Oh, nice. So they built a T-Rex that barely moves. (laughs) And the premise is that it's Paul Walker's first movie. Paul Walker is like a student and he's dating, uh, not dating, but he's interested in Denise Richards' character. But her boyfriend's like the jock or whatever. Yeah. So, and this is where it gets crazy. So the the jock 
uh, boyfriend gets all mad because like, oh, Paul Walker's, you know, talking to my girl. So they take him out to a zoo and leave him behind in the lion uh, sanctuary. So the lions eat him. <laughs> and this is where it gets even weirder. A scientist comes in, takes his brain and puts it into the T-Rex that they're trying to make alive. <laughs> And then the entire rest of the movie is Paul Walker as a T-Rex trying to convince Denise Richards that, no, it's me, don't worry, and how to get him back as a human. And that it is, is amazing. I have never been so happy to see a movie in my life. It's, and you might be confused because if you search Tammy and the T-Rex, you might see something that says Tanny, T-A-N-N-Y and the T-Rex because of a misspelling that made it onto like the final print of the film. Um, <laughs> Makes it yeah. even better. Tanny and the T-Rex. And then in the credits, it says Tam. It's it's incredible. Um, so That's yeah, on Tammy our watch list for sure. It is wild. <laughs> I, I love movies like that that are bad and not trying to be bad. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of movies now that are trying to make like bad, funny movies. and They're it's, in on the joke. It's yeah. not the same, though. Right. What was the one? The Room? The Room oh. is the classic, yeah. He's he's uh, doing what's his name Tommy uh, Wiseau. Tommy Wiseau. He's doing a new movie. I saw that. Uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna gloat a tiny bit here. The guy in the movie, Mark. Yeah. Uh, he just followed me on Twitter oh, for no nice, reason, buddy. and I've never felt more connected to the film industry <laughs> in my life. So yeah, I think is the he room... the Mark the handsome guy or? Like that's what, his are you, handle, what are you trying to say about or... Tommy? Like, <laughs> Tommy yes. looks like a lizard. Yes. Um, Mark, Mark wrote one of the funniest books I've ever read. The one about the making of the movie? Yeah. Oh, uh, Disaster Artist, isn't that yeah. what it's called? Yeah. Phenomenal. And, well, the, so the movie of it, too. Yeah. But that book is amazing. It's so good. If you've never read it, it, it does this amazing thing where it's like it flip-flops between chapters where it's telling the story of... Um, Greg Sinestro is his name. Yeah, yeah. Greg meeting Tommy, but then the next chapter will be about the making of the film, but it'll go back and forth yeah. and kind of tell you. It's the most like incredibly crafted structure-wise yeah, book it. ever. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Another one like that, uh, well, The Birds, that was Hitchcock, right? Yeah. That's like a classic that people love, but The Birds too. Is like one of the worst movies ever made. So is Birdemic Shock and Terror, if you've ever heard of this. I don't know that one. Oh, it's, uh, I think it, it legitimately was just like uh, some guys with a camcorder and was like, we need to make a movie. And they made, they tried to make like the birds in like this weird pseudo environmental activist film where like the birds were bad because of like oil or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, the the like uh, there's a scene where they're trying to hit the birds out of the way but all they have is coat hangers and the birds are just like jpegs floating on the screen <laughs> it's phenomenal birdemic shock and terror and tammy and the t-rex if you take nothing from this podcast today <laughs> those are the two things i want you to take <laughs> okay we're we're definitely gonna take that we, yes we have our watch list prepared I think we should probably close it up there because yeah. it's not going to get better than <laughs> you, these film recommendations you can't beat tammy the t-rex <laughs> Well, Dylan, it's a pleasure. We we have done a lot of work in the past, and we just yep. with COVID and just different circumstances of life, we haven't seen each other in a long time. I know this has been very nice. Uh, we were both just really excited to see you today. I I you know, and and of course have this conversation, but just you're somebody who's influenced both of our lives for so long, and like Mike said, it's just been a while. So. Oh, I really appreciate that. And I could say the same to you. I, uh, believe it or not, I still have that painting. Uh, cool. the, I want to take you on an adventure painting, uh, up on my wall. So, nice. yeah. And every time a town heroes album comes out, I, I still, I, I will say this, um, 
Sunday Movies is probably the album that I've replayed the most in my life. Oh. Mm. Uh, just like that was, I think, around the time where we really started taking off with like working on music videos and yeah. stuff. And like your guys' music has gotten me through a lot of stuff. Um, Constellations, I go back to every time because yeah. I just like that song. It just awakened something in me. So, like, both of you, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And thank you for having me on this podcast. It's, it's really our cool. pleasure. Where, yeah, buddy. where should folks find you or your work? Right now, um, we're actually working on my company's website, so don't go there. Uh, <laughs> but when it's done, it'll be riverpointstudios.com is where we kind of post all of our work. Um, but the most active place to find me right now is probably Twitter at twitter.com slash Dylan Garland. Um, I've been having a lot of fun lately and just kind of like sharing more of what I love and not being so like, you know, corporate about it. So, yeah. Awesome. Probably we'll put place. all the links up in the show notes Excellent. and to the music videos, of course, that yes. we've chatted yeah. about. One last The four-hour New York City vi- it's film coming. is coming. Yeah. Yes. Cannes 2024, they're going to open with the <laughs> yeah. raw cut. Uh, one last little shout-out, too, I, I would love to make is um, The Last of I, the show that we've been talking about quite a bit, which is, you know, my favorite project and the one I felt very happy with. Uh, if you're an Eastlink subscriber, uh, Eastlink Community TV Video on Demand has it, um, and you Sweet. can watch all six episodes on your time whenever you want. So, and we also have a show called After the Divide, which is kind of behind the scenes uh, section of each episode. So, cool. if you have Eastlink, and uh, if you don't, you should uh, go out there and find it. And I hope you enjoy it because we had a blast making it, and uh, yeah, it's something a little different um, from the Nova Scotia film industry. So, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Huge congratulations Thank on you. all that you've accomplished, all that we know that you will. You're such a, a deep, kind soul. <laughs> Sweet, buddy. We're excited to see where it all goes for you. Thank you. Well, I uh, look forward to whatever we do next as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Let's, let's, let's chat. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Four hours in Prague. <laughs> <laughs> And here we are, folks, the outroduction portion of the podcast. This is my favorite portion. What makes it your favorite? No, it's not. It's my favorite portion that you get to say outroduction each yeah. week. You get to as well. You're allowed. Yeah, I like I like your approach. I'll allow you. <laughs> so what do you got uh, coming up here? What's the next show for you? A couple we big shows radars. coming up. We are heading to Frolic and Folk in Iona. That's sold out. Okay. It's always really fun there. Then our Carlton show, there's still some tickets to that here in Halifax. April 21st, Friday, we're doing an acoustic show. Always seems to be a pretty kind of magical time in there. You get sing-alongs and tell lots of stories, and you have that listening room, so it's just a really nice vibe. That's April 21st, then the next week, on the 29th, we go to PEI to the trail side. So we're... We're trying to make it a, a whole sellout, the 14th, 21st, and 29th. Exciting. Yeah. And the 21st at Carlton is with Elise Aaron. Yeah. Former guest, good friend, awesome person with a new album out. That's right. Yeah, Elise and Garrett were here and, uh, yeah, spent the weekend even with us. So it was awesome to have their company and their new album's a mega hit. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, exciting. Well... Folks can get the tickets on your website. And we'll, we'll include links in the, okay. in the description there. Yeah, head down there. And all the videos that we talked about in today's episode are, yes. are linked there as well. So check yes. out those old Town Heroes faves. And as always, thanks everybody so much for tuning in every week and keeping us going with these great chats. And uh, tell a pal. Okay, folks. Much love and see you next week.